You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. I have a little uh, thought experiment for you this morning. Two questions. First question, would you rather live in a town with or without police? That's easy, isn't it? That's the easy one. Here's a little harder one. Would you rather live in a town with or without bad police? That's a little harder, isn't it? Because we know we need police to protect us, but who's going to protect us from the police, right? And all that is to illustrate kind of our tension with the whole issue of authority whether they be civil authorities or parental authorities or church authorities. The Bible says that God created authority for our benefit. Look at Romans 13 here. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God created authority to bless us, to prosper us for our thriving. And yet, like everything that God creates, authority has been touched by sin and ruined by sin. And so there is good authority and there's bad authority. In Proverbs 28.2, by the transgression of a land, many are its princes. In a lawless country, it is the law of the jungle. Only the strong survive. And so there are, you you can just think of a a third world country which is ruled by by various gangs, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, so it endures a good leader is a blessing to his country. He causes it to, to be protected and to thrive. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous increase, and I think that means when the righteous increase in influence, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. So we've got this continuum in the Bible of good authority, which serves and blesses people. And it could be parental authority. It could be civil authority. It could be spiritual authority. But we've got good authority on one side, and we have bad authority on the other. And, And nobody on earth wants to live under a dictatorship except for the dictator, or live in an anarchy either, do we? So we see the need for authority, and yet the kind of authority is crucial. And you can see this in the history of of Israel. The darkest part of the Old Testament is the book of Judges. The weirdest stories in the Bible are in the book of Judges. You you see just unspeakably evil things happen there. And twice in the book of Judges, it says in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was anarchy. So finally, there's a king, and there's several good kings, David, Solomon, Josiah. And in the days when there are good kings who fear God and trust God, the land is blessed. The land prospers. The land is safe. But there are many more bad kings 
than there were good kings. They lead their people into idolatry, into sin, and finally the whole nation goes into exile because they're bad kings. Now, did the land have bad kings because the people were bad, or did the bad kings lead the people into evil? I don't know. It just, seemed, I, it just seems to me that people get the king they deserve, but that's my own opinion. Uh, but all this to say is that good authority, the proper use of authority, whether it's in a family, in a city, in a church, or in a government, makes all the difference. And what I want to talk about this morning as we continue in Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians is what good authority looks like, how authority is meant to be used. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, we call it the blessed mess because this church was a mess. Uh, they looked much more like the city of Corinth than they looked like Jesus. And, and the book of Corinthians is, is really easy to follow. It, it's just a bunch of problems they have, and Paul addresses the problems one after another. And then some questions they had that he answers those questions. We are in the first problem right now, which was the problem of division. And Paul has been pretty straightforward in dealing with this. He's, uh, he doesn't hold back at all. And now at the end of chapter 4, as we close this section on division, Paul talks about why he has been so strong in, in reproving and correcting the Corinthians. And in this passage, we get an example of what the proper use of authority looks like from the example of Paul. And so this morning, we're going to look at three things. First, good authority leads with affection or with love, not with shame. Second, good authority leads by example, not just explanation. And third, good authority leads with courage and not with cowardice. Our culture has swung so far to emphasizing individual rights and away from the general good that this is an extraordinarily tough time to be an authority. Parents are afraid of their children, or if they're not afraid of their children, they're afraid of messing up their children. Teachers are afraid of their students. Administrators are afraid of special interest groups. Employers are afraid of their employees. Politicians are afraid of their constituents. The courageous leadership is rare today. And if you're in any kind of authority, I hope this passage will encourage you to lead courageously and to lead in such a way that will bless those who God has given you responsibility for. So as we pray, if you're in any kind of authority, you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you're a boss, you're a manager, you're a teacher, you're responsible for anyone, Let's pray silently that Christ will teach you. And if you're under authority, which should be everybody else, let's pray that God will teach you. So let's just pray and ask Jesus to teach us this morning, and I'll close. Lord Jesus, thank you that you humbled yourself and lived under your Father's authority so that we might become children of God. And I pray you'll help us to both live under authority 
and exercise authority in a way that it blesses others. We pray you'll be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing we learn from Paul about good authority as he explains himself to the Corinthians of why he's being so sharp with them is that good authority leads with affection, not with shame. The last semester of my senior year of high school, I got straight A's for the first time. And I was so excited, instead of driving home from school, I drove to my parents' grocery store. And I went behind the meat counter where my dad worked, and I showed him my report card. I was, I was so excited. And my dad said, it's about time. That was it. And I was just deflated. And in retrospect, I shouldn't have expected anything more. Because my parents always focused on where I failed what I needed to improve on, how I wasn't measuring up, never encouraged me in terms of, of what I did. And that, I don't blame them for that. That's the way they were raised. But the focus of everything was on, you need to do better. You need to do better. Well, it's about time you did better. The focus was on me, the failure, and how much they suffered as my parents. Um, other than that, we really didn't have much of a relationship. They, they weren't interested in me. They didn't ask me questions about what was going on in my life. They didn't ask questions about how I felt about or what I thought about things. It was all performance that counts. And so as I got older, we, we drifted apart naturally. We had a friendly relationship, but it was never a, a deep relationship. My wife came from a totally different home. Relationship was everything, and so when we had kids, we really made our relationship with our kids the highest priority. That didn't mean we didn't correct them or train them because you've got to do that. But it was in the context of a loving relationship. And so every, we did everything with them. I, when the kids were little, we, I spent a lot of time on the floor playing with Legos, playing with dolls. Uh, when they were teenagers, I spent a lot of time at musical theater uh, performances or coaching soccer or anything like that. Did we have disagreements? Absolutely. But it was always in the context of a close relationship. And I feel like we still have that same close relationship. And I learned that from Jesus and learned it from Paul. Look at, look at what Paul says here. I do not write these things, all of his corrections about their divisions. I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now you'll notice in this passage, there are two contrasts. One contrast is between leading with shame and leading with admonishment. The other contrast is a contrast by being taught by a tutor and being taught by a dad. Shame means to humiliate. And that's how my parents led me. They led me by humiliating me. Admonish is just the opposite. Admonish means to correct 
for one's benefit. I am the world's worst golfer. I have been playing golf for decades, and I have not improved yet. And it's easy when I, when I play golf to shame myself. You are such a horrible golfer. Why can't you hit it straight? But when I have a golf instructor with me, every time I shank it or, or top the ball or anything like that, it's a positive thing. Because he says, okay, let's, let's see why you did that. Let's change your grip a little bit. Let's change your swing plane a little bit. It, it is not, it is, I'm being taught, I want to be a good golfer. He's helping me to be a good golfer. That's the difference between leading with shame and leading with admonishment. Shame discourages. Admonishment encourages. Shame attacks the person. Admonishment corrects the performance. Shame is usually about the leader and how you failed them. Admonishment is about you and how you can do better. Shame leaves you feeling hopeless and discouraged. Admonishment leaves you feeling encouraged and wanting to move forward. And so the first thing we see about how Paul led, Paul led in a way that the benefit of the people he's leading is uppermost in his mind. It's not about Paul. It's about their good. Now, the other contrast you see here is between being a tutor and a dad. There were no public schools in those days. If a kid was going to get an education, he was going to be educated at home. So either your parents taught you, or in many cases, a slave, a tutor taught you. Now, this is not a contrast in the quality of education because there are some very well-educated tutors. This is a contrast in the motivation that the tutor is tutoring to get paid because that's his job. But the father teaches because he loves the child. And that's what Paul is saying. I love you like a father. It's, that's the whole point that, that, that Paul, that people need to know, that Paul is reproving them. He's correcting them because he loves them and he wants the best for them. That's the way Jesus leads us, isn't it? You ever thought about why does God give us commands? Everything. Why does God give you commands? God is good. And he wants you to experience all of his goodness. And because he's created us with a free will, he gives us instructions of how we can experience all of his goodness. I love John 15, 9 through 10. Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. An amazing verse. Jesus says, to the degree that God loves me, I love you that much. Abide in my love. Live in my love. Live as if I love you that much. How do I abide in his love? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've said to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Jesus says, I want you to experience God's love. And the way I experience God's love is by keeping his commandments. 
And as I keep his commandments, it gives me joy because his commandments are the best possible way to live. I want you to have that same joy. I want your joy to be made full. And, and I've found that when I see God's commandments as his way of me experience his goodness, his love, his blessing, it changes the whole, the whole perspective on that. Let me give you one illustration of that, recent illustration of that. I am, a, by nature, a clannish person. I'm Scotch. And so there are people on the inside, there are people on the outside. Now, I know none of you are that way, so you can just attribute this to, to my Scottishness. But I find myself very quick to judge people who are different than me, which means all drivers. Uh, <laughs> Quick to judge people who look different, who act different, who talk, oh, I'd never do that. Why is he wearing that? It's winter. Uh, you know, I, have, I will have a, a million judgments in a day about various people. I'm supposed to love people the way Christ loves me, right? And so I, I began to realize I don't because I don't see people as loved by God. And so lately I've been trying to concentrate, whenever I see anybody, I try to remind myself, God loves this person as much as he loves me. Because God loves perfectly. He loves everybody perfectly. He's no respecter of persons. God loves this man, this woman, as much as he loves me. So why don't you act like it? And when I begin to act that way, all judgment goes out the window. And, and the interesting thing is, I'm just a lot happier. I'm not a cranky old man. Because focusing on how much God loves this person is the best way to live. And all I'm doing is obeying God's commands. God gives us commands not to shame us. And if, you, if you're ashamed before God because you don't keep his commands perfectly, you, you have a lot more to learn about God. We keep his commands for our benefit. That's why he gave them to us. So, first of all, good authority leads with affection. Yeah, the people who love us the most influence us the most. Isn't that true? Nobody loves me more than my wife. And nobody reproves me more than my wife. And I listen to her because she's right, because I know she loves me, and she's only doing it. Does that make sense? Number two, here's the second thing we learned about good authority from the example of Paul, that good authority leads by example, not just by explanation. I am a learner. I love to learn. I love new ideas. I love new strategies. I love new thoughts. And I used to drive my, my staff crazy because every, day, every week I came in with a new idea, a new strategy, something to implement. And because uh, I thought leadership was explaining new information. That's what I thought a leader did. I noticed something. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. They just kept doing what they did 
even though I was flooding them with great ideas all the time. And what I realized is that people's lives don't change by information. People's lives change through implementation. And for the most part, we need an example who shows us how to implement that the best leaders don't say, do as I say. They just say, do what I do. And that was Paul. Look what Paul says here. I exhort you, therefore, because I'm your spiritual dad, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Do what I do. Paul's not sitting up on high saying, thus says the Lord through me. He's saying, just do what I do. Just follow my example. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy is Paul's disciple. Timothy has been with Paul long enough that he knows how to live the way Paul lives. And I thought about that. I thought, Paul has just sent them Scripture. He's just given them all the information they need. Why does he need to send Timothy now? Because they need more than Scripture. They need a living example of how to do what Paul does. And so Paul sends them Timothy because he will teach you my ways. It's interesting that the, the first name for Christianity in the New Testament was the way. The way. All other faiths were just believed in gods that needed to be sacrificed to and worshipped and propitiated so maybe they would be nice to you. Christianity was completely different because it was a way of living. Teach them to observe all that I commanded. It was learning how to live the way Jesus lived. And the way that was passed on was from person to person. You can impart information by explanation, but you can only make change action by, uh, by example. The most important lessons I've learned as a Christian over the years was by somebody showing me how to do it, showing me how they did it. I remember how I learned to do evangelism. When I was at Long Beach State, my good friend Greg Knapp, he was the greatest evangelist I knew. He, he would walk into the cafeteria and say, why don't you quit dinking around and get, get on Jesus' program? And he would just start preaching. And I, I was odd. I couldn't do that. I wasn't going to do that. But my friend John Colson was just like me. He was quiet kind of introverted, and, and he said, let's go talk to people about Jesus. I said, okay. And, and, and so we went out, and as I watched John do it over and over again, I thought, I can do that. John's just like me. And that's the way I learned how to share my faith, was because I had an example, somebody who did it too. Uh, way I learned to study my Bible, I had somebody teach me how to study the Bible. The way I, I learned how to pray. I had somebody who could pray in front of me and show me how to pray. That's why we talk about one-on-one -on -one discipleship here because there are th lessons you can only learn through an example. 
by having a coach. So, so Paul is not so much a professor as he is a player coach. I, I read a, a great book a while back. It was called The Captain's Class by Sam Walker. And, and uh, the author takes what he considers to be the 16 greatest teams of history. Like the, the 1950s Montreal Canadiens for hockey or the New Zealand All Blacks for rugby um, or the, the 1990s U.S. women's soccer team. He picks these teams not because they were champions, but because they were champions for a long time. They were a dynasty. They, they just excelled all other teams. And he asked the question, what made the difference between these teams and all other teams? And he found a very surprising answer. It wasn't the coaches, because lots of teams had great coaches. It wasn't the superstars, because lots of teams, every team had superstars. It was the captains. Because in every one of these great teams, there was a captain who embodied the ethnos of the team. He didn't talk a lot. He didn't make stirring speeches in the locker room. Uh, he, just, he just played hard. And by watching him, other people saw, this is what it means to be a member of this team. This is how you do it. And he went through all of these different teams. It's just so people you've never heard of, people I'd never heard of, but who were really the secret behind that team's power was a person who actually lived it and did it, and people could watch them and say, okay, that's what it means to be on this team. That's what it means to be a champion year after year after year. And I've seen that the difference in organizations, the difference in churches is how many examples you have. People who don't say, do as I say, but just watch me. Do what I do. That, that good authority always leads by example. Now let's go to the third one about good authority. That is, leads with courage and not with cowardice. Here's another little thought experiment for you. What's the difference between a politician and a prophet? A politician tells you what he thinks you want to hear for his benefit right? A prophet tells you what you need to hear for your benefit. Who's more popular? Who's more popular, a politician or a prophet? Politician. Because he doesn't make you uncomfortable. Who do you trust more? The prophet. Because you know he tells you the truth. It is impossible to lead without courage. The test of a leader comes when people don't want to follow you anymore. When there's pushback. When people begin to resist you. Anybody can lead when everybody's part of your fan club. That's easy. But boy, the real test of leadership comes when you have to fire somebody. Or when you're, 
leading the organization in a direction that half of them or more don't want to go in, but you are convinced this is what, it, when you stand up to your child and say, no, I don't care what all the other kids are doing, this is what you're going to do, that's when courage is necessary, isn't it? And unfortunately, this is where most leaders fail. Remember the story of Eli in the Bible? Eli was the priest who raised young Samuel. But Eli had two other sons who were both priests. And they used the office of the priesthood for their own benefit. They slept with the women that worked in the, tem in, in the tent of uh, the tabernacle. They took the best parts of the, of the uh, sacrifices and got fat on the people's sacrifices that were supposed to be given to God. And God sends Eli a message, and he says, He who honors me, I will honor. But he who despises me will be lightly esteemed. Because you have allowed your sons to despise me, I am removing the priesthood from you and giving it to another. Years goes by. And then in a great battle between Israel and the Philistines, the Israel takes the ark of God because they think that if they take the ark, God certainly won't allow the ark to be captured, so they're guaranteed a victory, remember? And Eli is just beside himself with worry because, oh, what's going to happen to the ark of God? Philistines win, they get the ark. The two sons of Eli die, and when Eli hears about the ark being captured by the Philistines, He's so fat from all the sacrifices he ate, he falls off of the rock and dies right there. Just a, a horrible end of a, of a good leader who didn't have the courage to stand up to his sons. The test of a leader is courage. Will you do the right thing because it's the right thing, regardless of what people, what your kids, what your friends say? And that's the situation Paul's in. This is the second letter Paul has written to these folks about these issues. And there is a group there in Corinth who ignore him. And now he addresses those people. Now some of you have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. This is just wait till your dad gets home types of... I'm coming. I'm coming, and we're going to find out who God is with. Is God with you, or is God with me? For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? and a spirit of gentleness. Are you going to repent before I get there so we can have a nice conversation? Or are you going to continue to be arrogant, which I'm going to have to come on strong? Why is Paul courageous against people who oppose him in that church? Where's his confidence? His confidence is in God. If God is on my side then God's going to have the victory here. I am going to be faithful to God. I'm going to say what God says, even though you don't like it. 
and we'll let God sort it all out. Now, this was a big division at that time. Would the major leaders of Corinth win or would Paul win? How many of those leaders can you remember now? Any of their names? We don't, we, Bible doesn't even record their names. We don't even know anything about them. Who do we know? Paul. Paul, because God was with Paul. And the way to be courageous as a leader is to put your hope in God. God is the one who has called me to do this. He's going to have to be the one that enables me to do this. I have always been a people pleaser. When anyone wasn't happy with me, I immediately assumed it was my fault. I must have done something wrong. And, and the biggest mistakes I've made as a leader has been I have given in to people's resistance rather than standing firm. And I want to tell you a couple of verses that have really helped me to, to repent of that. One is, is Proverbs 25, 26. Like a trampled spring or a polluted well. Think out in the desert. You come to an oasis. It's the first water you've seen in days. And yet, it's all muddy because animals have been trampling through it. Or there is scum on the top. It's just horrible. He says, like a polluted spring or a trampled well, so is the righteous man who gives way before the wicked. You do not gain anybody's respect by not standing firm on what you believe. That's the point there. You're not, you're not helping yourself by compromising on things you shouldn't compromise on. The other verse is Proverbs 27. A man who walks in his integrity, that is, is true to what he believes is right, a man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his children after him. Do you want your children to be blessed? The answer is yes, we do. We want that. Okay. Easy question. Proverbs 20, verse 7 says, for your kids to be blessed, they're not going to be blessed because you give in to them on things that are right and wrong. It's because you stand firm even though they're angry, even though they're mad, even though they walk out. Because over the long haul, that's what's going to influence them. I remember my dad. He always loved me, but he would not bend on what he believed to be right. And those verses have really helped me to stand firm when everything in me said, back off, compromise, let them have their own way. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus did. I was reading the Bible at one time with a guy who was a non-believer. And uh, he said something nobody had ever said to me before, but he was right. He said, I am amazed at how rude Jesus is. And, and he's right. You know, people who haven't read the Bible, they think of Jesus meek and mild, turning the other cheek, just a wonderful Santa Claus type of, of character until you actually read. And Jesus is pretty straightforward about stuff. You th what do you think of when you think of the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is a shot across the bow of the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus says, 
at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, none of you will see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you've got to be better than those guys. And these are the guys self-righteously think they're the most moral, godly, religious people. You don't want to be like them. And so then he begins to show, he goes through the whole Sermon on the Mount and shows how their standard of righteousness falls so far short of God's standard of righteousness. You have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be liable to the court. Whoever says to his brother, you fool, shall be liable to the Supreme Court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, will be guilty enough to go in the hell of fire. Just because you haven't murdered somebody doesn't mean you're right with God, because God's looking at your heart. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. And you go through that whole sermon, and he says, here's what you think obedience to the law is. You think it because that way you can do it. And you can think, boy, I am a righteous person. Here's what it really means. Why is Jesus doing that? Because they need the gospel. Until you realize you cannot keep the law. We are slaves of sin. Nobody is good enough to earn their way into heaven. And so Jesus is just brutally honest and makes everybody mad at him to the point they finally crucify him because he doesn't fit in. He doesn't kowtow to the authorities, but he says, here is what God requires. If you're going to walk with God, you're going to have to be like me. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And so the question is, am I a thermometer that just reflects the temperature of the room? Or am I a thermostat that influences the temperature of the room? Do I have the courage to stand alone because this is what I believe God says? And that's the biggest gift I can give you as a leader. You may be mad at me. You probably will be. And yet, that will bless you. What I hope you to see here is that good authority is costly. It costs Jesus. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, from cradle to cross, lived a life of suffering and rejection and pain because he loved us, because we needed a Savior. And he would not sit in heaven in comfort and glory and splendor and let us go to hell. So he becomes a human being, lives the life we were unable to live, dies the death we deserve to die, so that all who put their faith in him can live forever. That's what Christianity is. It's just saying, I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus is that Savior. Jesus be my Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the uh, responsibilities of authority because they push us toward you and depending on you. And I pray you'll help us to apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.